We are recording this podcast during lockdown in South Africa. We ask that you excuse any background noises or technical glitches. Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolien Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. Jana and I talk over the phone for hours. Um, We are masters in what some might call, maybe even with a sigh, deep conversations. And we find endless joy in being able to stimulate each other by diving deep into matters of the heart and of life and living. So in this podcast, we want to invite our listeners to and our guests to unpack and dive with us. Yes. And I mean, just to kind of sketch the picture for you, um, I remember one of my self and Nicolene's first long distance video chats when she was in South Korea and I was living in Nelspreet, we just skipped over the kind of nitty gritty small talk and went straight into questions like, how do you understand culture and language as interrelated in contemporary South African context? And we would just talk for hours and really like maintain that level of conversation that became so stimulating to us. So another reason why um, we wanted to start our podcast and kind of air our conversations is also because of the void we noticed in the Afrikaans or kind of alternative or progressive Afrikaans podcast scene, where a lot of the podcasts that we love, like for me, I can listen to Vato Willem Valsain for hours, but it's dominated by this kind of male discourse that you find in Fokov Polisikar and the likes. So we are often confronted by the frustration of only finding American or European sources to listen to. And therefore we crave content that roots itself in African understanding, but also in a kind of feminist Afrikaans understanding. Yes, like I love listening to Dollar What You Must, which is a beautiful um a very interesting podcast about the history and the heritage of colored South Africans and um, Afrikaans is brought into that podcast in a very interesting way. But again, um, we are craving the female voices. So maybe it's also important to unpack the fact that we are framing ourselves as Afrikaans thinkers, but we're doing so in English. <laughs> what, Yana? Yes, exactly. And I think we, we feel that it's important to make the distinction between our Afrikaans upbringing and the kind of cultural experience um, and the ability to reflect on it and through it in English as in a more accessible medium. So you'll find we are kind of embracing our Afrikaans accents and unavoidable bloopers and faulty grammars and kind of giving credit to it, but still um, highlighting the importance of, of English as a medium. Absolutely. So now we kind of want to give you an idea of what you can expect in this podcast. So um, in this podcast, we will take a theme that we are thinking about and researching in our own work, and we will unpack it to reveal the ambiguities, contradictions, and complexities around it. Um, So I want to just here give a specific shout out to the Visual Studies Department of Stellenbosch, because that's kind of where Jana and I um, met and came together in our first year undergrad and this department created a very very important need in the both of us to unpack identity and popular culture through the lens of philosophy art history and cultural studies as young professionals in this transitional phase after university we aspire through Eret to fill this void and continue the important work 
Yes, so in this collaboration between philosopher and artist, uh, you can expect that we will unpack or we will look at um, various cultural texts such as artworks, movies, TV shows, music, writings, and we will evaluate and investigate these topics, such uh, topics such as vir the virtual public and COVID-19, home and COVID-19, spirituality and climate change, and then looking at themes specifically that Jana and I really find interesting, like the meeting of the ally and the artist, allyship and social media. And after using the cultural text to unpack each topic, we will bring it home by talking specifically about what we discovered um, through asking these questions and applying it to the South African context, which is very important to us. Yes, yeah, so to um, basically we will be using the format of a current of a classic undergrad um, visual studies essay almost. Yes. Um, but to further introduce this distinctive and inter interrelated professional lenses as uh, philosophers and artists, uh, Nikoneline and I thought it appropriate to start off our podcast with a brief Q and A for you to also just get to know us a little better. Okay, Jana, so I'm going to just ask you some questions about your philosophical lens. Are you ready? Okay, so Jana, tell us about your relationship with philosophy. Okay, so most, um, most people who have a relationship with philosophy probably find their roots in kind of some sense of teenage angst or something like that, because <laughs> I got introduced um, to philosophy through my high school drama class that I did where um, it was in our syllabus to discuss playwrights and philosophers and specifically the existentialist philosophers like Nietzsche and Camus and Sartre and for the kind of hidden emo child in me that was very liberating to start thinking of and um, my father also really encouraged me to take philosophy as a subject in first year so that's kind of where that relationship started. And then I was just, philosophy was my favorite class. The whole idea of the, the love of wisdom, which is what philosophy means. Um, and also the power of learning to challenge your own assumptions, um, which I think any first year philosophy student really just finds kind of groundbreaking. Yeah. But then this relationship also evolved a lot um, especially when it went into postgraduate study where we were really starting to think about how we can be critical um, of the discipline of philosophy as like the kind of Western discipline. And there is where the feminist philosopher in me kind of um, woke up and went crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had a very influential class there and um, it was just amazing to start thinking and theorizing with feminist philosophers um, and that's kind of what led into my ongoing you know when people ask what do you do with honest philosophy then it's like cool master's philosophy um, <laughs> so I just went straight back into it and I still had a lot of questions that I needed um, answering or unpacking not answering because philosophy is always more about questions than answers but I, I definitely had questions and that's why I think philosophy will always be both in times, terms of like a personal way of life but also in terms of academic and research and the, the discipline of philosophy so yeah th I, that's roughly my relationship with it okay that's very interesting and so you have done your undergrad your honors and your master's at Stellenbosch University and your dad is also linked to Stellenbosch University so um being there myself at the same time as you I think that Stellenbosch is a very interesting space um specifically in the time where we were there. So if you can maybe reflect uh, or describe Stellenbosch as a space um, when you started there and in your time as a student there, kind of with a socio-political angle, um, touching on some of the, under some of the protests that happened there while you were studying. Yes, I think reflecting on Stellenbosch as a space is a very interesting thing because firstly, for a lot of people, Stellenbosch is synonymous with a space of trauma. And it's kind of at the same time, it's just this melting plot um, of ambivalence, almost, if I can say it like that, between the type of white, rich uh, framework, but then also a space where that's 
being challenged to um, become wider and broader, mm. literally. So when we were students there, um, it was kind of at the height of the Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall protests, which definitely added to, I think, the, the typical Stellenbosch student experience was no longer the same after that. Mm. In that way, being in residence, it was really very interesting and we were constantly challenged to unpack which is kind of what philosophy does as well so I felt like kind of on campus and in theory they all started working together to to question things such as racism and white space and rape culture and how these things are institutionalized and kind of systemic all those academic buzzwords that also became part of the space around the university Mm, I can definitely relate to that because if you think how interesting it is that for some of the departments at Stellenbosch, the protests became the reason that they couldn't finish their tests. Um, but for us at, at art and philosophy and maybe more to the BA side, um, looking at and experiencing the protest became part of our subject. It became part of the stuff that we then unpacked and looked at. Um, so during the Fees Must Fall protest, I'm interested in what set into your body that promoted questions around embodied protests that you started unpacking in your later studies? Yes, yeah, so I think um, the one insight that was probably the most prominent was the, the embodied nature of like protests coming together Specifically, I have one example that's, that I always find difficult to think about, but also very interesting. And I'm, I'm not even sure, it's not like I have a stance on it, but it was an embodied experience. Yeah. Um, there was a time when, um, I think it was close to Wordfears, and people came from Rhodes University and UWC. Can and, you remember um, in what year this was? Sorry for inter interrupting. Just Was this in 2016? I think 2016, um, maybe a little bit, it was, the, the fees was, was still continued, but it wasn't, I don't think it was in 2015. Yeah, because breakfast um, is in the beginning of the year, right? It's in the first quarter yes. of the year, so around March. Yes, yes I think so. And um, I was walking from my race with, with someone else. We were part of this group called Volksverreiers, which was this Afrikaans type of, uh, alternative Afrikaans, group that tried to resist the Afri Forum's way of talking about the Afrikaans language because mm. that was also still a prominent debate yes, going through. I remember the panikuka that they gave out and <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh goodness. Taking me back now. But um <laughs> I was walking with someone and this group of people came and they were trying to get into admin the admin B building uh, which is there where the rector and if management is kind of sitting. Yeah. And um, they tried to enter, the people tried to enter, and there was a woman who wanted to protect her face. Um, I think they, they went into the building, or well, at that time I didn't know, but they actually went into the building to try and make a political statement by um, using graffiti and smashing the windows. And what was interesting in this, before this encounter, I just spoke to this, this girl, this group, and she needed something to cover her face. And I had a scarf around my neck that my mother actually gave me. And then I, I don't know, it was this embodied experience where I just gave her the scarf and she put it around her. And I don't know why I thought I would get my scarf back because it was a very precious scarf of my mother's where she was, <laughs> that was gifted by a friend. And then I was just thinking of this embodied reaction of how, this scarf, this Afrikaans tiny type of scarf, <laughs> is now a protective layer to go and smash out the window of Admin B. And it was this interesting embodied experience of like allyship, supporting someone, but also a weird sense of complicitness, a weird sense of being able to just be on the sidelines while other people are really like putting themselves in danger but also ambivalent feelings toward those actions. Like, can mm. we justify these things? So it was just that experience kind of summed up the perplexity that came around, like all these little embodied actions that had so much extra meaning to it. Mm. Um, 
and yeah that was something that sorry that was a long example yeah, it's but very interesting i think what's also interesting about that scenario is something that i look at a lot and what we obviously will unpack in some of the other podcasts but also the the very very fine line between what is public and what is private and and how those two sit so closely with each other and when we enter public spaces we often in those strange and very complex and nuanced actions notice that we don't really know where that distinction lies anymore when it, when is it my scarf and when is it a scarf that protects and a scarf that can do something out there um, in the world so yeah that's very interesting yana thank you so much for sharing that experience is there anything else that you wanted to add about about that experience well, maybe just, um, I'm sure we'll delve into these topics later and, and in further episodes, but just more broadly, um, I think something, protest is also very embodied because you quickly learn, I mean, and that's also where you're, how you are situated. As a white person, I felt that your skin is, your, what you are in that space is, is part of the embodied messaging and you can kind of get a feel for how your body speaks on behalf of you and the kind of consciousness around it. Mm. Um, so I think that's just one other important thing where, I mean, I can talk about embodied protests for a very long time. Yeah, I'm very excited to unpack those things with you. And I, I also this last point that you added links so nicely to a lot of the work that I do in my performance art way. Exactly what you say, I try to um, bring that out and highlight how my skin um, speaks for me. And, and what it means to just go into a space and, and let that happen. So to do certain actions and to take to do certain things through performative art to, to let that speak. So it's very interesting how those topics um, link. And I'm very excited to unpack that in further podcasts. I have one more question for you. Tell me, who is the philosopher in transit? Kind of. On a, on a different note, another interest of mine is this is traveling and I recently um, completed like a backpacking journey with my partner, um, which was cut short a little bit. But in this time where I was not really doing any academic work, I also found philosophy in a different way in this idea of being in transit, being in between. So I think the philosopher in transit is actually a way for me to make sense of the type of um, philosophical questionings stemming from travel that you find when you are sitting on a plane or a boat or a bus or wherever. But it's also a way of thinking about myself, I guess, as a transitional philosopher in the same sense. So you can maybe switch switch it both ways mm. um but yes it's also dealing with questions and especially now of the in-between which i find a f fascinating concept in between bodies in between places um and where so much of that complexity is in the in-between and not just in the snippets of you know curated instagram mm. pages or whatever but really traveling as a way a lens for understanding the in-betweenness of life in a different way yeah, interesting, because we're kind of in an in-between space in history now, not sure what's going to happen. So that's also a very exciting jumping off point that I hope to explore in further podcasts. Thank you so much, Jana, that we could delve deeper into what it is that interests you and what you look at in your work. We move on. Um so that our listeners can find out a little bit more about you. So can you start by telling us a little bit more about your realization that you have often verbalized to me that art is enough and how that frames your work at the moment as an artist? So art is enough has kind of become a mantra for my work post-university. So in the last three years, I've started using that insight that I got through working in South Korea. Um, I went there to save up some money because I was 
very aware of the fact that once I finished my degree, I didn't really know how to start my art career. I didn't know what to do. And I knew that you need capital before you can start an art career. So I went to work in South Korea as an English teacher and was very lucky to then get an artist residency there that I could do for eight months of the 12 months that I stayed there with a very nice studio space and all of these beautiful um, opportunities to exhibit and to create work in collaboration with Korean artists. And for the first time, I had an opportunity to create art just for me because the curator said that there's basically an open brief and you can do whatever. So then because I was confronted with this, um, you can do what you want. I had to really ask myself, well, what is my relationship with art and what do I want to, to speak about? And I realized that there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. I think I internalized the criticism at university to such an extent that it actually started affecting my productivity and my creativity. And then this mantra of art is enough kind of started to fe feature um, it, itself in my work as I made the, the healing of my relationship with art the focus of the art that I put out. So um, when I say art is enough, it is a reminder to myself that it is I am able to make a living out of being a professional artist. It is a commitment to myself that I will continue to believe that and I will continue to practice that. Um, it is also a statement to the world to say that art is significant, art is important, art is a way that we can understand and communicate and connect and heal. Um, yeah, so that is kind of um, what art is enough means to me. And I had an entire exhibition painted mantras um, in Stellenbosch. Uh, that is the paintings that I exhibited um, that I made in Korea as I reflected on this um, idea of healing my relationship with art. And then I recently also, um, the day before the South African lockdown um, started, I released a, or I recorded and then released a, a performance piece called The Artist Bears Her Cross that is also an iteration of me kind of taking on this idea of being a professional artist now and continuing with it and actually just reasserting that to myself and to the world that art is enough. It can get me through this time and it can get us through this time. Wow, that was such an eloquent exploration of what that mantra means to you. And what I find interesting is how um, art is enough as a mantra really talks about the, the interconnectedness between the personal and the private. Yeah. Um, you always, we always learned in one of the first things in visual studies was this idea of like the personal is political. Mm. And I think that the way that you can express that through art is also really telling in the statement between you, the artist and the, the practice of art itself and Absolutely. not separating the two. Absolutely. Um, so that leads me to another question specifically on this idea with how your art always tends to deal with public and private spaces. And I've been following your career as an artist, obviously from our student days, and you always find a way to, to really speak to this tension um, or connection. So can you maybe elaborate starting with your flight series that you, that was actually, st that started in the Fismas Fall time as well. Can you elaborate a bit about this distinction between public and private space and your art works? Yeah, so let me just segue a little bit to this question by saying that it's very true what you say about this underlying vulnerability that's always been part of my work, where I realize that art is not something that I do, it is a way that I am. So I often make sense of what is happening around me um, through art and by positioning myself, the only place that I really can in my life is at the center, at, at the Euros kind of view of it, and then trying to make sense of, of what is happening around me through unpacking uh, the situation or where I am at through art. And I've always found it very interesting in, in my studies that there happens this distinction between the artist and the artwork when we speak about the artwork. So people tend to, whether it's lecturers or buyers or curators in, 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 in exhibitions, they sometimes tend to be this very 
strange split that we can talk about the artwork and then we talk about the artist as the creator of the artwork but we don't necessarily acknowledge the fact that the artwork is linked to the artist in a very very direct way right so yeah another way that this that i noticed this was through my performance art where what is private my body and 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 where i am positioned in this reality within my body is something that i experience is very private but like you said we said earlier as soon as i enter a public space that all of a sudden that what is public gets projected onto my body which is private and and that is endlessly interesting to me so like how discussions and, and understandings around race um, and around privilege how that which is private and I mean how that which is public and then when I go outside be projected onto my body as a white Afrikaans woman and then things around privilege privilege and race um, and the economy and po political things can be applied to me as a person so that line between what is private and what is public has always been very, very fascinating to me. And I think the first time I really explored this was in the performance performance piece called Flight. And it was a, it was a sculptural piece um, of a staircase that I put next to um, Yanni Mare on the red plane in Stellenbosch at the height of Fees Must Fall in 2016. So it was in October and it was with the support of Open Forum curated by Greer Valley. And it was this opportunity that I got with funding from the Guthe Institute to build this staircase and then to see what would happen if you put something that is, we're very familiar with a staircase and we understand this monument, which is at the center of the campus. Um, how, what happens when you put this next to each other and then the hierarchy and the, the, the visual significance of this um, statue standing on this pedestal very high above everyone else, this white man that doesn't have anything around him for a hundred meter radius, because he said that, he said that we, they can't build anything. That's why the library is underneath him. What is the significance of this man? And what happens when you put a staircase next to it? What happens if we now get access to him, but also he is able to possibly step down. So that was kind of like a visual question mark of how do we mo monumentalize, how do we commemorate in the public space? And the reason I asked this question was because of this distinction between what is public and what is private, that this man that is standing on a pedestal can for one person be very insignificant and they pass it every day, but for another person, it can be a symbol of violence. It can be something that actually infringes on their identity and, and causes them to feel like they don't belong, um, to feel like their history is not represented. So that is just a reflection of how um, something that is public can speak very direct, directly to what is private. And in this series, Take Flight, um, Flight was extended in 2019. I performed with, um, I collaborated with a few other artists and again, placed I placed two staircases, one next to Cecil John Rhodes in the company gardens and one um, with Jan Hendrik Hofmeier in um, Church Square in Cape Town and then invited artists to again ask this question around um, if these figures have prevalence in the public space and if they are, um, if it's right for them to stand unframed, pinned, almost these past figures pinned into the present moment by the pedestal um, and, and they're just standing there without giving them a very specific context into what their meaning is right now um, in the current time. So the performances that we did there, also different artists intervened, but the one performance that I did with Dujuzele Matabula um, was around um, cleansing the public space and again bringing that um, very, something that is very personal and very dear to us and being females and also again not seeing um, the female narrative represented the way that we wanted it to be represented. Uh, we went into the public space and we kind of did this cleansing ritual of opening the space so that new voices might enter and a new history might be written and we made our bodies hyper visual by dressing in this very elaborate gowns and by creating this really really very specific visual around us and drawing attention to us so that the public might look towards us for meaning and not towards these massive statues 
So I don't know if there's anything that you want me to jump off of or elaborate more, but that's kind of the the thinking around what is public and what is private for me. Yeah, no, that is absolutely fascinating. And I think what the the flight series has really shown is also how how bodies become kind of this mediating tool between the private and the public. Um, And especially then when you engage with these statues, these things we memorialize, how the statues are also kind of performing and their bodies are also there and we kind of can extend the realm of embodiment and um, the public and private through these kind of material objects um, that also become persons. So um, we will definitely be be reflecting on these themes a lot more. Um, And then then, like maybe for you to jump off of is now how in this time of coronavirus, or COVID-19 is how, where we are very much private in our homes, but then that, that also becomes public and that, that kind of tension becomes explored in a new way. So maybe you can tell us about your, your kind of current work with I Saw Nothing for Days and Send It Home um, with the same distinction in mind. Yeah, so I started working at the beginning of 2020, end of 2019, um, jumping off that performance that I did with Dudu. Um, I was interested in, in how art can facilitate spaces of healing and also how art can emphasize and bring to the forefront this very emotional experience that humans have. And because I believe that artists is very directly linked to our um, first experience, our embodied experience. That's often why you can stand in front of an art piece that is abstract and be covered with goosebumps because it takes you back to something very specific. So I wanted to to highlight um, the emotional quality that art has, but through performance to look at how performative action can actually help us understand our emotions. So if I were to go into a public space and through performative action, publicly process something like um, something like the barriers put on women from a very young age, like these kind of sentences of girls shouldn't do this or a good girl does this. So if I were to go into a public space and openly air and feel this emotion and, and, and bring it to life, something very personal, but something that applies to a lot of people and bring it to life. Um, So I was thinking about that and then COVID-19 happened and uh, everyone went inside. And I thought, well, this is still a very important question to ask because in this time where we are struggling to make sense of what the future will hold, where are we going, um, what does this mean? All of those things. I find that a lot of my friends and a lot of what I see on social media is people struggling to make sense of emotion, struggling to deal and feel and, and, and process emotion. And again, I thought, well, maybe art might be a very nice way for this to fit in. So I saw nothing for days have, um, started to come into my mind in these performances that I would process through performance art what I'm going through and not just what I'm going through on a personal level obviously that's where it starts but kind of opening it up and seeing how it can um, relate to what other people might be going through so one of the performances that I'm currently working on um, is called what is my value and it is a, a, a performance of embodied movement dealing with the value exchange and the value negotiations that happen between our most intimate partners so now that we're in lockdown I'm thinking a lot about what does it mean to be in the home space what does it mean to be confined with your loved ones um, what kind of things are happening in that space Space. And one of the things that I've always been very interesting to me is the division of domestic labor, the way that if you're in a heterosexual relationship, you, re- you know, have to negotiate these roles that are divided on among the gender lines and, um, and find meaning and value within your partnership. And um, I'm speaking about heterosexual relationships now because I'm in a heterosexual relationship. So that's the way that I understand it. Um, And and just asking the question of how can we negotiate our value? What is our value? And um, something interesting, just a little sneak peek about this performance is that I've bedazzled a wedding dress and have completely 
glamorized and redesigned the wedding dress to make it very fun and very girly. And I've created this veil out of, um, what do you call it? Um, Grunte pakis, that those suckies. Um, oh, like, like, I have no idea what like kind of meshed, it's a meshed grid weaved <laughs> bags yeah. that you, you get vegetables in. So I made a, a veil out of that and, and uh, worked onto it the words, what is my value? What am I worth? Am I enough? Um, and it's also obviously the very direct linked to getting married and how women were were told from a very or and still is told from a very young age that the goal that they need to reach is to get married but now i'm asking that when you have are in an intimate relationship how do you really negotiate your value if you've always been told that your value is only is only assessed in this way in in doing labor domestically or um yeah cooking and those kind of things so my work is looking a lot at the home space and those kind of themes also came from when I was in Korea and I looked a lot at what does it mean? Uh, what does home mean? Is home a space that lives in the body or is it a place that has a, a physical existence in the world with items in it? And also in terms of Afrikaans, my Afrikaans heritage, it was a very interesting question for me to ask when I was there because it was outside of South Africa. And during university, we were often confronted with the decolonizing um, narrative and, and thinking about decolonizing and it's very it's very easy for those questions to become also again very personal and then you ask yourself where do you where do I belong and um, where where do I have um, the permission to speak uh, when is it appropriate for me to speak and all of those things feature into um, well, where's my political home so where do I belong um, and then yeah, really just thinking about those things at this stage. <laughs> and I think it's so fascinating also how, um, once again, it's this kind of dealing with what has been normalized as ways of being at home, um, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, especially for women or in heterosexual relations or um, how this kind of being at home is also now being it's an opportunity to really unpack and reinvestigate what it means to us yeah um, definitely and something that is that that I just want to mention that kind of started with my more formal research that I, I because I intended to do these performances um, about ways of being a woman and 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 the female experience um through how I experience it and by bringing out these specific themes that I mentioned just now or just one. But the one thing that, that stood out for me was also this question of after, in a post-apartheid um, South Africa, what other opportunities were given to white Afrikaans women to create new identities except for the identity, the ideal identity of the Volksmutter? So what space is there for me as a white Afrikaans woman to re-describe and create an identity for myself that I feel comfortable with that is not within this frame that links directly back to the Afrikaan, Afrikaaner identity during apartheid. Because the ideas of ordentlikheid and um, a goeie huisvrou and um, a woman needs to keep the house together, those are ideas that were very, in my, um, I mean, in our history and our um, heritage, was very much linked with the idea of the Volksmutter during apartheid. And I don't know. I don't know what opportunities there were. there is for um for me to, to create a new identity without this pushback because um, from my family and from people in, 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 in my community um, and from some the things that are still linked to the Afrikaner identity, there's a lot of pressure on being a certain way and acting a certain way and all within the box of being a woman. So those yeah. are very, very interesting to me. And I mean, I think... Um, on a personal level, we've also had long conversations about this topic, especially even I am, um, I got married last year with my partner and how it's so interesting to compare how these modes of being also like projected in a certain discourse that because I'm now married, I am free from a lot of this talk, but at the same time, it's being 
put upon you in a different way and those type of expectations and what it looks like to subvert these practices Mm. in kind of everyday home Mm. Um, not everyday home lives and I think what what links very nicely to our podcast is that that air it that airing it thing that um, it's not just you subverting it by feeling it and showing it and showing what it feels like too so this is the and just bringing it back to what the performance actually do what I do in the performances is I try to really go into this space of feeling um, through meditation and, th- and through my art practice to see how it is possible for me to publicly feel this feeling in order to subvert it. Because I think the problem is that there's not enough space in our society for people to challenge and feel it when they really do. And, and, and the times when I feel it is very personal times. It might be within an argument in my, in my house along the lines of how domestic labor is divided, then I feel it. But that feeling of being enclosed and, and, and having certain expectations on me has been brought about by things that function outside of the home. So again, it's yes. that bringing what is outside into the home and seeing how it is projected onto my body and kind of reprojecting it from my body through performance so that people might see how I'm experiencing it. And hopefully through that reprojecting of this thing, um, find liberation in giving expression to how they are experiencing this enclosure or not. Yeah, and I think in that way, even this podcast the idea of airing it out, we were kind of thinking about the idea of dirty laundry or mm. um, things that are kind of stuffy, and even that is such a domestic example. Mm. Um, but how this is also an attempt to make public these conversations that we are having this type of thing that we will find at a lot of a lot of our friends we have this type of conversation about you know the female experience and domesticity and we find it in podcasts like the guilty feminist Mm. or other international podcasts but it's this is another way of making that in making those type of conversations public within this if you speak about this folks mother or this afrikaans um kind of idea that would never verbalize things on the air Mm. um never so Mm. also if i think back about how um historically i think there's there's studies where where they found that a lot of women who were typically in the villages um kind of doing the laundry in the rivers so which is very much outside in the public Mm. area but how where they found that some of the earliest sociological findings where these women were staying there for longer and washing the laundry was actually a way for them to have conversations almost like mini town meetings Mm. where they I like to think about that idea of like they are just low-key running the whole society and everyone else thinks they're doing laundry overdoing Um, the laundry (laughs) overdoing the laundry so yeah another just one last question that I have for you that's also in this home space but how you in your career you've co-founded a, um, a company called Create Space, and that also links with this idea of being creative, um, and that you can, especially now where you're doing it online. Maybe you can just tell us a bit about the idea of Create Space and art education as another tool to work through these themes. So linking back to what I said about um, where art is enough, the mantra came about is looking back onto my studies and feeling exceptionally grateful for everything that I got from it and everything that I learned from it. I was also very challenged by the idea that art is fit into this strange little box that it doesn't really quite fit into, which is the academic sphere. Like how on earth can you give a mark to art has always been my question. And I think every (laughs) single, every single art students question, like obviously there is a way that they assess it and there's a way that it is understood, but it also creates this model of comparison that actually um, discourages collaboration. I love collaboration and I love working with other artists, but I cannot tell you how difficult it is to get an artist that will trust you because of this idea of 
competition that is created. And also because of this idea that art is done right in a certain way, and therefore there can be something that is wrong art, um, mm. which doesn't really fit with me. And also uh, ever since I chose to become an artist, I've heard from every person that I, almost every person that I tell that, that I'm an artist, they will say something like, I can't even draw a stick drawing or how, wow, that's amazing if you're an artist, like how do these ideas come to you? And it's very frustrating to me because I know that art is a very innate quality. Creativity is an innate quality. And I always say to people, if you can draw a line, you are an artist. And through Create Space, Olivia Bevan and I try to create the space for people to reconnect to their creativity through creating a very specific practice that is centered around non-judgmental thinking. So there's no right or wrong way to do anything. We work very intuitively. We try to connect to a sense of play, which is actually our theme for this week. Our theme is play and as it connects to a flow state in life. So how can we play to discover um, how can we we yeah how can we play to learn new things and really to try and connect to that inner child um, yeah and, and in that way thinking about how art can teach us something about ourselves so if we do create um, a space to connect to our innate creativity and through that create to our authentic voice, then what can we discover about ourselves through art, through making art? Um, so we have a meditative practice where we start by, and the reason we do meditation or why it's a meditative practice is because we want to use art as the, as the um, object of meditation, which means you bring your focus to that thing. So in mindfulness meditation, you will use your breath as the object of meditation. In mantra meditation or transcendental meditation, you will use a mantra. But now in our classes, we are shifting the focus of attention to the act of making art. And so therefore it's not important what the end result is, it's the act and how you show up in the act of creating that is important. And through that, I try to bring in the, the sense of vulnerability with which I make art. We try to bring in, yeah, we try to bring in that very um, natural and intuitive model that, that Olivia and I work with in our own art. Yeah, and I've, I've personally attended some of these classes and um, it's just amazing how it can change your frame of thinking about creativity beyond just you know the like you say the end result like I often when I got stuck with thesis writing I loved coming to one of those sessions because it unleashes a different a different way of all like you always say the stories we tell ourselves mm. um, about how we can create and what it means to be creative beings absolutely um, yeah, no, absolutely. Because one of the one of the things that we've noticed is that people rock up with a certain expectation, and as soon as we let them know that they can release that expectation and just play, and they the more they release, the more they get out of it. Because that kind of expectation and being stuck in how things need to turn out is also a way that we get stuck in our work and in our life. And creativity and innovation are not split from each other. So if you are not allowed um, spaces to explore um, where you won't be judged or shamed so maybe if you're in a workspace where you are too scared to try new ideas because of the shame model in how they reward people that bring new ideas to the table you will find that innovation kind of completely falls away and people struggle to connect to new ideas and to actually push the business forward because they are not allowed to be creative. So then be creative in another area of your life. You reignite the fire and it, the, you can be creative by gardening. You can be creative by cooking and um, drawing is just a very specific block that people have and they can find a lot of liberation through understanding and believing that they can be creative. Um, so yeah, it's very, pro it's a project very dear to my heart and a project that I hope a lot of people can get healing from. Um, and we just, we don't bring the healing. We just hold the space for you to connect and heal yourself. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I can also relate to that on a, um, I'm definitely those who know me, know me quite a big procrastinator. Um, but I think the thing about procrastination that I like so much is this idea of 
you know, the art of doing nothing, yes. of um, That's playing. allowing yourself. Sometimes when we procrastinate, it's just a way of allowing ourselves to play and um, to understand that ideas and thoughts, and especially if you look at philosophical thinking, it's not something that comes in a linear or planned way. Mm. Um, and that's why like showers are kind of innovation hubs. Um, yes. Not in a drought, but <laughs> in general, we find ourselves when you wash the dishes, you can get a groundbreaking idea. And I, I like this way, even the way our podcast is framed as organic conversations where we can just jump and things can come out of it. So yeah, hopefully we can also create a different space um, to extend the project. Definitely. Okay, so I think we've, um, we've introduced, uh, this was kind of a broad introduction of our key, um, key interests. We definitely have many more, but in the next podcast, we will unpack some of these ideas that we just touched on a bit further by specifically questioning the ways in which philosophy and art, as it's um, often dismissed in times of great stress, can actually contribute in this time, like a the type of historical and social and political turning points, such as this COVID-19 crisis. So mm. we look forward to further exploring these themes, um, especially through the medium of art and philosophy. Just a few more things before we sign off. We are so grateful that you listened to the public airing of our thoughts. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. Rate and review us if you enjoy our content. This way you help us by making it easier for other listeners to find us. As always, we would love to hear what you think about the concepts, theories, texts and practices discussed in this podcast. So please reach out to us either through Instagram at Eret underscore podcast, through our Eret podcast Facebook page or via email at eretpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all these links in the show notes below. If you would like to get a short email from us sharing resources, related content and any other fun stuff that we don't share in the podcast, please go to our website at nvcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it and subscribe. If you are interested in supporting this project, you can also do so at nvcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it. And remember, just like laundry, sometimes putting those stuffy ideas out in the air can help freshen them out. Until next time, stay stimulated. stimulated.